Hello and welcome to this week's book show. I'm Rick O'Shea. This week, transcending county boundaries in an entirely HSE-compliant fashion, Sarah Baum answers questions in East Cork, set by a book club in Monaghan, and we take a look at the positive legacy of the last four years in US politics, the spike in sales of books about Donald Trump. But first... In January of this year, author and screenwriter Frank Cottrell Boyce wrote a manifesto of sorts on Twitter. It was a pledge to clear space online to promote children's books, be they new, not so new, or forgotten. The first principle being that children's books are quite simply, and for many reasons, important. He joins me now. Uh, Frank, this might seem like a, a stupid question to begin with, but are we overlooking the simple fact that children's books are just that, that they're immensely important? Yeah, we definitely, definitely are. There's just very little cultural conversation about children's books, even though they're important in, in every way. They're important commercially. Uh, I think Winnie the Pooh was Disney's most lucrative product until Frozen came along. Harry Potter is one of London's biggest tourist attractions. But they're also important about how we build people. You know, like UNESCO said that um, reading for pleasure was one of the best indicators of of how a child would do at school and at work, you know, that they, not just in terms of social mobility, but in terms of happiness and emotional resilience, books have been incredibly important to me, you know, in terms of building my kind of emotional life. And and I think, like, for me, the most important thing is that the books that I read, like, when I was eight, nine, ten, eleven, first books, you're kind of putting your foot out into the world on your, by yourself for the first time. And the books that I read then pointed me towards things that, would make you happy and things that are beautiful in the world and give you pleasure. And at the moment when, for instance, in lockdown, it's very difficult to sort of find reasons to be happy. But I find myself looking back at those books and what they taught me. And so I want to kind of pass that on myself. Yeah, I still feel slightly bereft, even at my age, that I don't have a series of friends and a dog and we don't go on adventures and solve crimes. Yeah, exactly. Where is, where is my magic tunnel? Um, I run a, a book club online as well. There's 34,000 yeah. people in there. And yeah. one of the questions that's asked most often is, what can I get for a four-year-old reader, a six-year-old reader, a nine-year-old reader, an 11-year-old reader? Because an awful lot of people, they're in the dark about those choices. Now, that kind of yeah. leads into the idea of, of press coverage because, I mean, despite the size yeah. of the readership, which is huge, children's books don't get a lot of attention in the media, do they? No, they don't. And because they don't get attention and parents don't get and parents and carers and elder siblings and uncles and aunties and godparents don't get any kind of direction. And what happens then is you end up with a kind of monopolistic situation, which is that children's books are basically David Williams, J.K. Rowling, Julia Donaldson. That's your lot. You know, that's your choice. And they're all completely brilliant, but they're not all that there is to offer you know there's a really brilliant line at the beginning of the f the end of the film Ratatouille I don't know if you remember the end of Ratatouille but a critic comes into Ratatouille's restaurant and it, he makes this beautiful speech at the end of the film where he says a critic's job is not that hard and you don't really take any risks but you have one really important job and that is to be a friend to what is new and just just doesn't seem to be a lot of critics doing that for children's books I'm really aware of it because I'm also a film writer and the smallest, most negligible, dismissible film that I write will get a substantial review in every single newspaper in Europe, you know, whereas the most genius children's book I write, well, I'll be very lucky to get a sentence in a summer roundup, you know.
And I know you don't necessarily have an, an answer to this, but but what's the solution? Obviously, shy of major newspapers all deciding to just allocate an awful lot more space to, to yeah. reviews of children's books. Well, Rick, you are the solution, and, and people like you who are happy to talk and blog and tweet about what's going on in children's fiction. And there's an army of school librarians and teachers who are very active and curious about finding new stuff. The thing that makes me sad is that there's nothing... Because there's nothing in the mainstream, there's nothing for parents. And to me, the most powerful kind of reading is the reading that you do with your parent or your carer or your sibling or your god, whoever, whatever it is, whoever is the grown-up in your life. That shared reading experience is so powerful. And if I stand in a bookshop, I can see, you know, grown-ups coming in looking for books for children adrift. They've no idea where to start looking. One of the other interesting points that you make as well is that for every author, you know, living or otherwise, you're all competing for the same shelf yeah, space in yeah, every shop yeah. as a children's author, which is something that's that adult so authors true. don't have to deal with. Oh, that's so true and so painfully true. If you go into a bookshop or you go into Eason's, they'll have a classic fiction section and a modern fiction section. But the children's section is the children's section and the classics are taking up the same competing for the same shelf space. So if I'm Sally Rooney, I'm competing with Roddy Doyle. But if I'm Frank Gottrell Boy's children's author, I've got to compete with Roald Dahl and C.S. Lewis and Lewis Carroll and the Brothers Grimm. They're, they're all up there on those shelves, so there's not a lot of room left for contemporary stuff. I you know, you've touched on this briefly already, but I presume that, you know, like all of us, your own childhood reading has had a, a huge influence on you and in particular I suppose on on your work in my work yeah obviously in my work but much much more importantly in my life children's fiction kind of points you towards what's good in life and it and it it sort of fixes it in your memory and gives it that extra dimension of nostalgia and uh, an adventure so and, and the little things and as you grow up like now it's quite a dark time and life gets hard those little pleasures that children's literature have punched up become really important, the part of how you get through. So this is a silly example, but the Millie Molly Mandy books, there's books about this little girl, Millie Molly Mandy, and she would go off on big country walks and her mum would just give her a hard-boiled egg to stick in her pocket and a piece of bread. And like, that just, for me now, like a hard-boiled egg and a piece of bread is a ticket to adventure because it's full of that kind of summer memory of those big walks that she did and uh, I love the Moomin books which if you're not familiar with they're about a family of trolls in Finland and I'm calling them a family but they were all different species and the hero was Moomin Mama nothing ever phased her dark creatures would come looming out of the Arctic night to the door and she would say would you like a coffee and the, the house just seemed like an amazing place and it's full of these strange creatures who called themselves a family and they hibernated and they all ate different food. And of course, I grew up and had quite a big family. Teenagers hibernate, they all eat different food. Should have been a stress, but I would find myself catching myself on sometimes at those big meals and thinking, this is the Moomin House. I made the Moomin House. We live in the Moomin House. It's fantastic. I mean, so many, so many examples like that. I read The Wizard of Earthsea when I was a kid, which was set in a kind of fantastical land called the archipelago. And I, I didn't know what an archipelago was. And the first time I saw an archipelago, um, you know, it was the west coast of Scotland, seeing those islands and just thinking, oh, this is 
this is a magical land, you know, it can cast a spell, you know, books that you read when you're a kid, they can cast a spell and they cast it forwards into your life when you are going to need it. Is it slightly strange for you that perhaps amongst adults, you're better known for your, and I'm using quotation marks around this, your grown up screenwriting than your fiction for younger reader, readers, the Michael Winterbottom scripts, the 24 hour party people and Welcome to Sarajevo and, and, and all of the other stuff, the episode of Doctor Who. Is that a strange one to, to, to be better known for, for that than for what it is you actually do? Yeah, I mean, it's like that world is so much more glamorous. You know, when a film comes out, it's a red carpet and a new suit and lots and lots of interviews. And that's that's that is exciting. It is. There's no point saying it isn't exciting. Whereas when your children's book comes out, mm, it's a cake. <laughs> but that's better, isn't it? I think it's much better to be grounded and to have that, I think. And, and, and the reception that you get from children is so different qualitatively from what you get you know if you go to a film festival people will come up to you and say love your work and that's it whereas if you go if you read a book in a school it that's kind of it's completely unpredictable what they're going to say it's always really insightful and uh, and it's a it's a much more open conversation where you realize that you're you're in the middle of their lives which is a fantastic thing you know Given that it hasn't happened for pretty much any author this year, do you miss that? Do you miss that being out in the real world talking to your readers? Yeah, I do. I, I, you know, I think it's worth saying that. You know, we were talking about the commercial aspect of this. For a lot of children's authors, that's an income. That's a really important part of their income in school visits. So I, that's not been quite the same for me. I haven't really missed that. And I've done a lot of Zooms and I've kept an Instagram thing going. With I did a, like a creative writing. Um, workshop thing that I did on my Instagram every week so I did kind of connect with a completely different audience and I don't miss the travel but you do miss the immediacy of it and you miss you really really miss that moment when you connect with a kid who didn't really want to be there if you go on a zoom to of your Instagram the people who are at that zoom they want to be on that zoom but sometimes you're going to a school and you can see a kid who didn't really want to be there thinks what the hell is all this about I'd rather be outside and you say something and a light goes on and it might be just one kid and it won't, won't be every visit, but it is absolutely magical. And that kind of unpredictability I'm really missing, which I guess is what's missing for everybody during lockdown, isn't it? It's that the, the fact that something might happen by accident. <laughs> Everything's got to be pre-booked. I'm going to circle back around maybe to, to, to where we began and just finish there. How has your New Year's resolution to shine a little bit more light on children books been going, given that obviously the year hasn't panned out the way any of us thought yeah, it would? Yeah, yeah. Well, actually, it turned out to be more important than ever, didn't it? Because reading is one of the things that you can do uninterrupted during lockdown. And being available on, like I did these Instagram live events a couple of times a week, and being available like that, you can feel that for some kids it was really, really important to have a window that looked out of the house into another world. And if anybody wants to find you, uh, they can do that on Twitter and on Instagram by just looking yeah. up Frank Cottrell Boyce. Yeah. It's been brilliant to talk to you, Frank. Oh, it was great to talk to you. Really brilliant. Frank Cottrell Boyce will be participating in the International Literary Festival Dublin. If you'd like to hear him talk about such titles as Runaway Robot, Millions and The Astounding Broccoli Boy, he'll be in conversation with the wonderful Shane Hegarty in the first of the Tall Tales podcast, which will, as the young people say these days, drop at noon on Thursday, October 22nd on the ILF Dublin website and on the Molly Digital Radio Station.
On Tuesday, a headline in the Wall Street Journal read titles about Trump propel sales of political books at record pace. And with polling day in the US looming large on the horizon, whatever the outcome of the election, one of the side effects of the past four years of vibrant political activity in the US is an unprecedented boon in the sale of books about, well, vibrant political activity in the US. Stephanie Preisner has not only been reading some of them, but absorbing them willingly. Stephanie, why? Why are you so confused there? Amazing. Like some people in hair salons read about Kate Middleton and Meghan Markle and I'm sitting there licking the pages, obviously pre-pandemic, but just devouring them. It's just fascinating stuff. And I think if you read enough of them, you get a better sense. It's like a Venn diagram. You know, one book gives you one circle of what Donald Trump is like. Another book gives you another circle and where they overlap. And the more you read, you get a kind of a holistic view of what a despot this guy is. Before I ask you about those, weirdly, let's flip this on its head. One of the things that's happened is that Trump has been really good in the United States for book sales. Yeah, because he's a caricature. I mean, if I were to write a character of Donald Trump in one of my TV shows, my producers would come back and be like, can you just tone it down a small bit? Like, you cannot write this. And so for people who write books... This is really happening in real life and people are coming out and they're telling their stories. And because he has his thumb so heavily on the people and he demands such loyalty, when he breaks people and people finally get free, it's like Belle running away from the beast being like, let me tell you what it was like in the castle. And I just cannot get enough of it. Okay, we're going to look at a couple of the ones that that you have read, um, uh, the prominent ones. So Mary Trump's Too Much and Never Enough. Yes. Okay, so... She clearly has a dog in the fight, right? Because she's a relative. And I've read a lot of it. I haven't devoured it in the same way that I have the others. I sort of am more into the journalism because, you know, this is kind of quite salacious. But by all accounts, she really gets her teeth in there. Now, the, the Sky Atlantic series, The Comey Rule, it is on the box at home. And I'm recording the episodes. I just haven't quite gotten around to them yet. But that's based on James Comey's higher loyalty. A higher loyalty. And just like the book, I've watched it because I uh, I devour all of this stuff. In the book, just like the series, James Comey is a very pious man. There is one scene where he is interviewing this guy who might get a job. And he's like, the most important thing for this job is that you love someone. You need to leave work at the right time and go home and love someone because that will travel through. And you're like, James, come on, man. Like, we know what you did with Hillary in the emails. Stop being so pious. But, you know, it is a TV series based on his book, which he wrote himself. And he obviously likes to believe in that Zen version of himself. Very interesting. Watch it, read it, love it. It kind of makes Jeff Daniels the perfect person to play him on on telly as well. There's Michael Wolff's Fire and Fury then as well? Yeah, Fire and Fury. Oh my God, right. So I... Um, with an agency in the US, CAA, and they send me books um, that are gaining traction around town in the hope that I might adapt them for series. And in 2018, I was lying in the guest room bed at my grandmother's house and an email came in at four o'clock in the morning because that's when LA is open. And it was a PDF of Fire and Fury by Michael Wolfe. And I sat up in the bed, Rick, and I did not get out of bed until I had finished that book. It was incredible. I couldn't believe that I, I felt like I was in the White House with him, you know? It's amazing. And then there's Bob Woodward, who is, you know, the, the big dog in this game because he's got, you know, form going all the way back as far as Watergate. He's got fear, Trump in the White House and now rage. Yeah, because he gets such great access because he feeds into Donald Trump's ego. Because he has historically had great access and written such great books, Donald Trump is like, oh, if this guy interviews me and I give him insight, I'm going to be up there with the other people he's interviewed. And so... Bob Woodward, he's the guy who broke the stuff that like Donald Trump knew how bad COVID-19 was before 
this all happened and he was playing it down. I don't know if it's stupidity or egotism on Trump's part, but Bob Woodward has access no one has seems to have had. What I like as well is that there's one you want to recommend for people before the election if you can. And it's a book that actually doesn't mention him specifically at yes, all. Yes, it doesn't mention Trump's name. It is not a gossipy book. Actually, if you read it, you'll come out of it a little bit more intelligent than when you went in, which is always great. Um, it's called On Tyranny by Timothy Snyder. Very short book, you'll get through it in a day. And it is about what patriotism is not and what being a president is not. And the f- it's written in kind of 2016, 2017, um, just after Trump's election. And so it kind of has a grim outlook on the things that could happen. And knowing what we know now, reading it, it's just fascinating. I really recommend reading it in the next couple of weeks before the election, seeing what happens. And on that happy note, we're, we're almost finished. Uh, Barack Obama's book, uh, the big one, is coming up, The Promised Land, print run of three million. Will you read that? I will, but I don't like holding hardback books, so I'll probably wait a while. Stephanie Preisner, we'll talk to you next week. Bye. Now it's time for a book group to put questions to an author whose work they've discussed recently at one of their meetings. This week, we're going to hear from County Monaghan, and here's Dick to tell us about this week's book club. Castle Book Club was formed in January 2016, and we meet in Dunamine, a rural parish outside Carrickmacross in County Monaghan. Uh, we started off with five members and with comings and goings we now have eight, three girls and five guys. We meet once a month and we have a rota of who picks our next read. That person gets to chair the next meeting and the format of the meeting is that we begin by each scoring the book out of ten. This is followed by everyone having their opinion and thoughts of choice that we have just read. We read a wide range of books from autobiographies to history to memoirs. A book could rate between a two and a nine at any meeting as we have an eclectic mix of members. We like our chosen read to be a maximum of 330 pages so that we have time to read our own choices during the month as well as the book club selection. And this week's book is Spill, Simmer, Falter, Wither, the debut novel from Cork-based author Sarah Baum, who's recently made the move into non-fiction. Hello, Sarah. Hello from Cork, Rick. Uh, Spill, Simmer, Falter, Wither came out all of five years ago. Here's Sheila in Carrick-Macross with a reminder. Spill, Simmer, Falter, Wither is a wholly different kind of love story that spans the four seasons echoed in the novel's title. Written with tremendous empathy and insight, it captures the incremental destructive essence of loneliness. It's springtime and we have two misfits, one an eccentric loner and the other a one-eyed dog. They forge an unlikely relationship. In a tired seaside town, these outcasts find solace in each other. But as their friendship grows, they are driven away by a community. As the odd couple spin through small towns and boreens, the narrator unspools his chaotic childhood, revealing an upbringing devoid of love and sustenance. Once he was abandoned at the side of a country road at night, only one of his childhood birthdays was ever celebrated. He also has a secret, and it requires this trip to shake it to the surface. This story is about true friendship and the devotion between two beings. It's a devotion that defies belief, but may strive to define despair. You will definitely come out of this story shaken and stirred. So, Sarah, does it seem like five years? God, it seems like longer sometimes. Um, it kind of had a longer life because um, because it did well. And so I kept talking about it for years and years. Um, but the last two years, or since my second novel came out, I haven't talked about it much. So, um, so this will be a refresher for me too. It's lovely to know that book clubs are still finding it around the country. We're going to take the first question from the Manon Castle Book Club in Monaghan. And it comes from Brendan. 
Sarah, the novel is written in the second person and it eases you into the character of Ray and builds beautifully until it envelops you. How did you feel when you were writing it? Yeah, so second person can be tricky because it's when you're addressing something, you know, in most cases it's the narrator addressing the reader. But in the case of my book, the narrator is addressing his dog. So it's essentially, um, you know, sort of 200 pages of a man speaking to his dog, monologue to dog, I've been known to call it. So how did I feel when writing it? I felt rather lost and disillusioned, to be honest. Um, it was written during the last recession um, and I was on the dole and my partner and I had just uh, left Dublin and moved, gone country, moved to East Cork um, to sure everyone knows where it is now, um, to a village called Whitegate. And um, I, my partner had a job and I didn't have a job. And we had this dog that was, you know, supposed to be a lovely thing and turned out to be completely crazy. Um, and I I will always remember walking the coast from um, anyone who knows that part of the world will probably know Roach's Point, the lighthouse. And you can kind of walk a strip of very rocky coast um, between Roach's Point and Whitegate. And I used to go really early every morning and walk that with my crazy dog and sort of plot out what I was going to be writing for the day. Um, and I remember thinking, why am I doing this? <laughs> when am I going to get a real job? Um, but I mean, everything, everything fell into place eventually. Um, but it was at the time, at the time I felt bleak. And that's definitely reflected in the book. Our second question then comes from Tom. Sarah, to what extent was the character fully imagined or to what extent based on any particular people or lives you have observed? Well, I just talked about um, where I was living. And it was sort of based on two different um, old men who had a companion dog and um, they were uh, unrelated to each other. But I felt like they were sort of an emblem of um, um, walking along the seafront, kind of ambling along the seafront with their their small dog. Um, so in a way it was based on, you know, nothing, nothing personal about them, um, but just the sort of symbolism of them. And then in, in, in its small details, I mean, uh, Ray, I mean, we're talking about Ray here. I, I, what I should have started <laughs> saying um, is that um, that the dog was completely based on my own dog. So the dog is the only true character. Um, and then Ray, like like all characters, really are sort of based on amalgams of lots of people I do know. Um, and me, me in, in, in every sort of small, timeless, ageless detail, um, his habits, you know, the things he collects, his sort of um, detachment and feelings of disillusionment um, was very much me. And then the other details were borrowed from from people that I knew, like, say, for example, the way that Ray sort of rolls and um, smokes cigarettes was very much based on my partner. And our third and final question this time comes from Anthony. Sarah, as a coincidence, I'm reading a novel by Heidi James, The Sound Mirror, and you're quoted on the back cover. What types of novels do you like to read? Well, I know that um, some writers don't read novels at all while they're writing because they don't want to be tainted, I suppose. And I understand that, but I'm the opposite. I'm a glutton. Um, so I will always seek out similar works, um, to similar work, similar to the thing that I'm writing while I'm writing it. And then I'll try to learn something from them. So while writing Spill Simmer, I read a lot of dog literature, as I as I termed it. Um, and I think this was mainly because it became an essay, actually, in the end, that was published in The Stinging Fly, probably the same year. Um, but I was sort of afraid of the genre, uh, if it isn't, even is a genre. And I, I didn't want my novel to be in the same sort of category as um, Marley and Me or Lassie Come Home or um, Old Yeller. 
So I um I started reading books like um Timbuktu by Paul Auster or uh, Flush by Virginia Woolf, sort of trying to find, trying to justify um dog literature. And the best ones I found um a novel called Julius Winsome by an Irish writer, though he's lived in America, I think, for years, called Jared Donovan. Heart of a Dog um, by Mikhail um, Bulgakov, excuse me while I mispronounce that, um, the same Russian writer who wrote The Master and Margarita. And then cometh my second novel, I, which was sort of about a girl going mad um, and trying to be an artist in her mid-twenties. So, God, I would have read things like um, The Bell Jar. Um, by Sylvia Plath or um, Janet Frames, Faces in the Water. And then more recently from my third book, which is um, nonfiction, um, I read more uh, more factual books, I suppose, about bird migration and uh, sort of uh, amateur craft, craft theory and things like that. Just before we finish, uh, Sarah, there's been a lot of shocking things have happened in 2020. For me, one of the more shocking ones was you joining Instagram recently. Uh, tell me a little bit about that <laughs> and tell me why you did it. Um, I think like a lot of artists, we feel um, a bit in limbo at the moment. Um, I mean, my uh, my first my first lover, my first I, I went to art school and trained as a visual artist and I've always continued to make work and handiwork is actually a lot about that um, and about, you know, it's parallels with being a writer and writing. But I I last year or this year, I'd sort of planned on making a concerted effort to exhibit more. And then, of course, everything has been sort of cancelled or postponed or um, in every field. Opportunities seem pretty thin on the ground at the moment. So it was out of sheer frustration that I joined Instagram. I thought it's a means of creating some kind of a online portfolio. So I guess I meant it more as a means of connecting with the visual art community. But um, but there's a lot of writers on there as well. Um, so it's been it's been a pleasant surprise. Yeah, but I certainly um, won't be joining any of the other social medias. Out of sheer frustration, I joined Instagram is a phrase that many of us could use as well. Uh, (laughs) Sarah Bowne, thanks a million for talking to us on The Book Show. Cheers. Thanks a million. Spilled Simmer, Falter Wither by Sarah Baum is published by Tramp Press, as is her latest book, Handiwork, which has been running last week and will continue this week as the book on one. Thanks to Manon Castle Book Club in Carrickmacross, County Monaghan, for this week's questions. If you'd like to volunteer your book group to take part, fire ahead. Drop us a line to bookshow at rte.ie. And that's it for this week's book show on RTE Radio 1. The podcast is available wherever you find yours. You can find us on Twitter and Instagram at BookshowRTE. Don't forget the announcement of the €100,000 International Dublin Literary Award being hosted by me is this Thursday, October 22nd at 11am. You can be there. Tickets are free. Go to ilfdublin.com for more details. I'll talk to you again next week. As ever, don't forget to check with your local bookshop for any of the books featured on the program.